Good morning, saints. Uh, I hope everybody's holiday was awesome. Um, and I always I feel uh, confused between uh, Christmas and New Year's because I'm not sure what to say. Do I say Merry Christmas or do I say Happy New Year? That I can say Happy Hanukkah. Hanukkah is, I think it's uh, ends tomorrow or today. Um, okay, so uh, my name is Jake. I'm not the pastor here. Um, I, and actually, I really do appreciate that Ed does, does give me opportunities um, to... Can I come down just a little bit, Alex? Can I come down just a little, little bit? I hear a, like an echo. Um, I'm really grateful that uh, Ed gives me the opportunity to kind of come up here and, and share my heart. Um, today, we're actually going to look at the book of Jonah. And uh, oftentimes, when Jonah gets preached, it's preached in a series. Because even though it's a really small book, there is lots, there's lots there. There's a ton of stuff there. I'm not going to do, I'm not going to preach a series. Because um, there's one kind of, there's some specific things I want to focus on when looking at Jonah. So I'm going to have the challenge of being able to like, I have to summarize the entire book for you guys without actually reading it out. Um, and then kind of going into the things that I'm seeing in Jonah and the reason why I want to talk about it and why it's been in my heart for the past uh, month or so. Um, so, but before we do this, I'm going to pray, uh, God, thank you for the character of who you are. Thank you for you. Thank you for being a grace, a gracious and merciful God, uh, who is slow to anger and full of loyal love. Um, I ask father that, uh, you just give me, um, the wisdom and discernment to speak simply to not overcomplicate things. Um, and I ask that you are glorified today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, the book of Jonah is really unique, and from what I've read about Jonah, scholars really don't know what to do with it. They don't know whether or not to take it as a historic account. <laughs> or to just kind of take it as a parable. Um, because if you look at the book of Jonah compared to the rest of the 12 minor prophets, Jonah is unique in the sense that it's telling a story about a prophet versus all the other books were basically the words from these prophets. So this is sort of the first one that's more of like kind of zoomed out and telling a story versus a prophet giving the word of the Lord. Um, and so, uh, so scholars will kind of, you know, they try to look at it. They try to look at when it was written and the history behind it and try to determine whether or not this is a historic account or just a, a, a didactic story, a story that sort of has, um, a lesson to be learned. And the thing that I think is, um, the thing that I see when I dig into this scripture is what confuses scholars is the fact that this book is actually both. It's both a historical account, but it's also written in an amazingly clever way that not only is it able to describe the events of history, it's also able to do so in a way 
that tugs out the heart, draws out the heart, and shows the reader something about who God is. Um, one thing that jumped out at me when I was digging through the book of Jonah is that there is something I could be talking about that's extremely relevant to our day and age. And that is basically, what does it look like to worship race and nationalism? I'm not going to go into that because the thing I want to focus on is actually God's relation, uh, Jonah's relationship with himself. I want to look at where Jonah is getting his identity from. And I also want to look at how God relates to Jonah. I bring up those things, though, because if you want to explore this book and look at those themes, I think there's actually a lot to be learned. Um, and so I'll just leave it at that. Um, so high, high level view of Jonah. Jonah mirrors itself. So chapters one mirrors chapters two. Chapter three mirrors chapter, uh, chapters, sorry, chapter one mirrors chapter three, chapter two mirrors chapter four. You're seeing the same things play out in sort of different ways. So there's a mirror, okay? So chapter one, you basically see where Jonah receives a message from God. Jonah responds to this message by running away, going and uh, getting on a boat to Tarshish. So he goes in the opposite direction of Nineveh. The word from God is basically saying, hey, I need you to go to Nineveh. Their evil ways have come to my attention, and I need to do something about it. I can't ignore them any longer. So he asks Jonah to go, and Jonah responds by going the opposite direction. While Jonah is on the boat, God sends a storm, and in the storm, the, uh, the, 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 the pagan sailors are trying to do all they can to like, figure out why the storm is happening and how they can save their lives. And so here I'm going to dig into scripture just because it's going to be relevant to what I talk about later. So in Jonah chapter 1, verse 5 through 13, in the ESV translation, this is what it says. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us and we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you? that the sea may quiet down for us. For the sea grew more and more temptuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land and they could not, for the sea grew more and more temptuous against them. So the men on the boat prayed, 
to the Lord. So, so that's, that's uh, 5 through 13. And so the summary of basically what happens next is that even though Jonah says like, hey, throw me in the sea, the men on board don't want to do that. Um, because in a way, the men on, on, the, on the boat are actually more reverent, than, uh, more reverent of God than Jonah is. And so they are doing all they can because they don't want Jonah's blood on, on their hands. And then finally what they do is they cry out to God. They, they cry out to the Lord and say, please wash our hands of this. We don't want this man's blood on our hands. Do as you will. And so they throw him overboard. The sea's calm. And God sends a big fish to swallow him up. That is chapter one. So you have sort of God's calling to Jonah and Jonah's sort of reaction and interaction um, with people that are not Hebrew. Now we go into chapter two, where this is where we see sort of the state that Jonah is in. In chapter two, we see a psalm that he lifts up to God. And so in Jonah chapter two, verse two, it says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of, Sh- of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But with But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. There's a lot that is happening here in this prayer, in this psalm, that shows sort of Jonah's state of mind and where he's at, what he's able to see, and what he's not able to see. I can't go into it right now because I want to finish the rest of the story, but just kind of remember that psalm. I will come back to it, I promise. One quick note for those that wondered, because I did, what in the world Sheol was. As far as I can understand, Sheol was almost like a, it was an underworld of sorts. It was uh, the deepest part of the earth, the darkest place on earth. So in a way, when he mentions Sheol, he's almost talking about like a near-death experience going down into the darkness. So after Jonah talks with God and says this psalm, God orders the fish to spit him up and Jonah finds himself on dry land. And that is the end of chapter two. Then we see chapter three, where Jonah receives a word from the Lord. Jonah said, uh, the, the Lord says again, go to Nineveh. Their evil has come to my attention and I cannot ignore them any, anymore. And this time, Jonah's response is he goes to Nineveh. So here's the thing. 
an important detail about the city of Nineveh. And this detail I know because it is right there in scripture. So whoever wrote this thought this information was important. He describes Nineveh uh, in Jonah chapter 3, verse 3. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey and breath. So we have a big city. And it says that Jonah began into the city um, doing a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So here we have Jonah who goes to Nineveh where it should take him at least three days to cover all of the city. And he spends only one day. And not only does he spend only one day, the word from the Lord is summarized in this, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That is, his, that is the word of God. We have entire books of the Bible written about words from the Lord, and he condenses it to that one sentence. 40 days, you'll be overthrown. Done. And the people's response this, to this incredibly moving message is that they, they repent. They turn away. The king hears this message and he decrees that everyone needs to stop what they're doing, put on sackcloth. They need to show reverence to God and they repent of their sins. This passage alone, I'm going to just kind of really just kind of put this as an aside. This actually is really encouraging to me as somebody that is up here right now preaching. Because to me, this says that my words do not matter. That whatever needs to be heard, God is at work in this room. He is, he is the one that is communicating to the hearts because Jonah tried really, really hard to give a message that was very, very poor in communicating God's intent. And so the people of Nineveh repent and you would think like, that's good news, right? Like we can, we can close the book on this. We can, we can close the book. It's good. We're done. It ends happily. No, there's a chapter four and chapter four mirrors chapter two in the sense that now we see Jonah's reaction and response to God. And instead of Jonah being happy that he succeeded in delivering this message and the people succeeded in a way that these people actually responded and turned away and repented, he's angry. He's angry at God. And so again, in chapter four, verse two, if you remember, chapter two, verse two, you have the psalm. Chapter four, verse two, you have this from Jonah to God. Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you are gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And here we actually see God's response. So you have chapter two, sort of God's prayer, or in chapter two, you have Jonah's prayer and you have God's response, which is actually commanding the fish to spin him up. Chapter four, you have Jonah's prayer. And now God responds with a question. And his question says, do you do well to be angry? 
And this chapter isn't done yet because then after this interaction between Jonah and God, Jonah goes east of the city and sets up a little shack because he's still hoping that God will, will, will rain judgment down on the city. And so he's just waiting to see what God does. And so in doing this, God calls forth a plant to grow and give Jonah shade. And this actually kind of makes Jonah really comfortable and he's, he's happy with this. But then God calls forth a worm on the next day. So in, in one day it comes up and it's giving him shade. Then, the next, then that night, God calls forth a worm. The worm eats up the plant and it withers and dies. And the next day, God calls forth a scorching wind from the east. And he, and he, call, and he has the sun just beat down on the head of Jonah. And then you have Jonah's response. So this is in Jonah chapter 4, eight, uh, verses 8 through 11. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord says, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor you did make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is, that's, that's the end of the book. So the book ends with God saying that he likes cattle. That he cares, he cares for the animals. I think there is so much in this interaction that reveals about God. Um, this book, we often t- have a tendency to focus on like the, the miracle that was this big fish that came to swallow Jonah, or we focus on Jonah himself. But Jonah is not the hero of the story. God is the hero of the story. This book is about God. And with that said, I'm not actually focused on Jonah because I think there's something to be learned about this interaction between Jonah, the way he views himself, and his relationship with God. So before, before I actually um, dig into this, I want to talk about, so I'm going to talk about relationship with self. And before I talk about relationship with self, I want to try to define what it means when I talk about relationship with self because I do believe that people kind of have their own ideas of what does a relationship with yourself look like. So first of all, I'm going to say what I am not talking about is I am not talking about self-care and I'm not talking about self-acceptance. When I talk about relationship with self, what I'm, what I'm referring to is what happens when you take the time, you give yourself space and time to know who you are. When you take the time to be present to your body, to your thoughts, your emotions, It is how you process the things that are happening to you. And relationship with self is related to how you discover your true identity. An identity that can only be discovered by knowing God. David Benner puts it really eloquently in this way. Christian spirituality involves a transformation of the self that occurs only when God and self are both deeply known. Both, therefore, have an important place in Christian spirituality. There is, no, there is no deep knowing of God 
without a deep knowing of self and no deep knowing of self without a deep knowing of God. John Calvin wrote, nearly the whole of sacred doctrine consists in these two parts, knowledge of God and ourselves. I am actually going to add to it because I think that basically relationship with God, with self, with community and the world are sort of these four dimensions of the cross, the four directions in which we go. And that you can't really, you can't just know God well without knowing who you are. You can't know who you are well without knowing your community. You can't know your community without knowing the world that you live in and the culture that you find yourself in. And so this is not like a a serial thing where you focus on one and then go to the other and go to the other and go to the other. It's not a progression. This is something that actually kind of happens all at once. The more you learn about yourself, the more you learn about others, the more you learn about God. It's just a rat's nest. And I know for me, I try to compartmentalize it because I want to make a process of like, I'm going to focus on God now. And then I focus on myself and I, I, I put it into buckets, but it doesn't work that way. It's something that happens all at the same time. So my theory is that Jonah does not have a good relationship with himself. And the reason why I I believe this is because Jonah is incredibly oblivious to what is going on around him. Jonah has no self-awareness. And I believe that having a healthy self-awareness is actually a part of having a healthy relationship with yourself. And so the, the reasons why I believe that Jonah... Uh, does not have a good relationship with himself and there's no self-awareness is the first thing I'm going to look at is actually the prayer that God, that Jonah prays to God. Because in this Psalm, as beautiful as it is, there is no repentance. There is no admission of what he has done wrong. There's no reference to his own rebellion. There's no, there's no reference to him running away from God. And I think the reason why there isn't any reference to that is because Jonah doesn't know. He's not aware that this is actually what's going on. In his head, he is justified in doing the actions that he's doing. Because in his head, the God that is asking him to go to Nineveh, where there's evil people there, and call them to repent, is not his God. And so when God prompts him with this word, he runs away. Because the true God is now challenging the God that Jonah has created in his head. This counterfeit God. A God that only does good to those who do good and punishes those that are evil. This is the God that he wants to worship. He wants a God that that fits into his idea of what morality and justice look like. And I think, and, and, and another reason why I think he's just completely oblivious, because even in his psalm, he references, he references idolatry. I'm trying to find it, but it's here. Those who pray regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jones praying a prayer to himself, and he doesn't even know it. He says, those people that they pray to the vain idols, they don't understand your steadfast love. And yet that, this is what he's doing. He's worshiping something that is not God. And so he's not aware. Another reason why I don't, I think that, uh, 
And this is the part where I get all confused in my notes. Um, okay, so the other part, the other reason why I don't think that Jonah has uh, good self-awareness is um, when the sailors start to interrogate Jonah, when they start asking him questions. Because they basically, like, they, 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 they ask him these three, three questions. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? This is basically, what is your purpose? What is your mission? Where is the place that you, you call home? And of what, uh, who are your people? What, what race are you? And of these three questions, he answers the one about nationality first. His response is, I am Hebrew. I think that's significant. Because I think Jonah is putting his race in, out front as the most significant part of his identity. One commentary puts it like this, since Jonah identifies himself first ethnically, then religiously, we may infer that his ethnicity is foremost to his self-identity. This indicates that Jonah is clinging to an identity that prevents him from seeing himself. Timothy Keller puts it this way, here is Jonah, a prophet of God with a privileged position in the covenant community who is at every turn obtuse, self-absorbed, bigoted, and foolish, yet he doesn't seem aware of it at all. And for those who are wondering what obtuse means, I had to look it up. It says annoying, insensitive, or slow to understand. That's what obtuse means. So how does this happen? When you place your value and your worth in anything that is not God, it will always result in brokenness and sin. I believe a lot of this hinges on this lie that we believe that what we do makes us who we are. The reason why I believe that this lie is apparent in our society is that when you work with wires in a house, electrical wires, you're called an electrician. When you work with plumbing, you're called a plumber. And when you sin, you're called a sinner. I think one of the ways in which we perpetuate this idea that what we do makes us who we are is when we describe ourselves as sinners saved by grace. We are not, we're, we are not defined by our sin. We are not sinners saved by grace. We are saints who sin. This is important because it's putting our identity in something that is not us. We need to understand. This is a really important thing to understand. We need to understand who we are. We are saints redeemed by Jesus. We are children of the King. That is our identity. If we put that our identity in anything else, we will always fall short and we will always fail. Last quote from Timothy Keller, I promise. <clears throat> this is what he says. Uh, if you get your sense of worth from how courageous you are, it will be traumatic to admit to any cowardice at all. If your very self is based on your valor, any failure of nerve would mean that there would be no you left. You would feel you had no worth at all. Indeed, if you base your identity on any kind of achievement, goodness, or virtue, you will have to live in denial of the depth of your faults and shortcomings. You won't have an identity secure enough to admit your sins, weaknesses, and flaws. 
An identity based on your own achievement and performance is an insecure one. You are never sure you have done enough. That means, on the other hand, you cannot be honest with yourself with your own flaws. I think this also happens when we focus a lot on a Christian ideal that we will never achieve. We focus on, on piety. We focus, even, even a focus on Christ-likeness can actually get in the way of this. Because I don't think God is calling us to live perfect lives. I think God is calling us to live in relationship with him. He's calling us to be present to him, what he is doing in our lives, what he is trying to reveal to us and show us. The problem isn't the things that are going wrong. That's not necessarily what God sees. What God sees is brokenness that he wants to fix. It's baked into his character that he wants to make things new. He wants to restore. So this is that. Oh, good. Um, I'm going to go into basically how jo- uh, Jonah relates or how God relates to Jonah. Throughout this book, if you kind of just uh, take a step back and focus on how God reacts throughout all of these chapters, this is what I think you will see. I think you will see God's mercy, God's grace, his patience, his wisdom, and his gentleness. So, This is the reason why I think you see, so these characteristics that I'm describing, this is how I see it play out. Jonah does something that God has every right to let Jonah just be left to his own devices. He runs away from God. A storm comes. He gets thrown overboard and he comes to the point where he's almost dead. God has every right to let him die. And he sends a fish to swallow him up to save him. That is God's grace. God's interaction with Nineveh. God could have chosen any other person to go to Nineveh. And yet he chose Jonah. He knew Jonah was going to run away. He knew Jonah would half-heartedly take to the task and not do a good job. He knew Jonah would get angry. And yet he chose Jonah as his prophet, to go to Nineveh. To me, this, this says something about how God relates to us. He wants to be in relationship. He cares about Jonah enough where he wants to put Jonah in these situations where he can learn more about who God is. And the belly of the fish, Jonah learns more about his grace. And I think with the interaction in chapter four, God's trying to show Jonah Something about his mercy and justice brings up a plant to give him shade, mercy, has the plant die, and Jonah feels that like that, that's, a, that's, that's wrong, that, that shouldn't have happened. And God corrects Jonah and says, who are you? You didn't plant this plant. You didn't make it grow. What do you have to care about this plant, whether it lives or dies? He had no part in the creation of the plant. He just liked sort of the, 
the blessing that it gave him of shade. And so when God saw it fit to make the plant go away, Jonah viewed that as an injustice. And that is not an injustice from God's perspective. This story about Jonah, I don't believe is a cautionary tale. I'm not talking about all of these things because I'm saying that like, you need to not be like Jonah. Because the reality is, is that we actually are, we are Jonah. It's not about not being Jonah. It's just the fact that like, we need to come to the realization that we are Jonah in many ways. We ourselves are obtuse and caught up in our own delusion. We're afraid to look at the reality of our life because we're afraid of what we will find. We are afraid of our own darkness. And so we do all we can to avoid it and pretend like it's not there. One of the things I've become very aware of in the past couple months is how often I use numbing as a way to escape the what that is going on inside of me. If I can, if I can just fill in the empty space with a Netflix show, something random on YouTube, social media on my phone, I don't have to be present to myself because eventually something's going to happen in life that I'm going to have to take, pay attention to, whether it's, oh, now it's time to set dinner or up oh, now it's time to go to bed. And so I've created a rhythm of life that is completely packed with things and I haven't given myself an opportunity to actually be present to the what that is happening inside of me and what God is trying to show me and reveal to me. Because the other thing too is, is that if I'm being really honest with myself, if I give the time to actually be present to the dark things that are inside of me, the things that I know are wrong, like the, the things that come at me when I look in the mirror and I see myself, like I'm afraid of what I'll find when I go into those dark places. But the reality is, is that God can see those dark places. In Psalm chapter uh, 139, verse 12, it says, even the darkness is not dark to you. Referring to God, it says, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. God's not afraid of darkness. And actually, as a matter of fact, he wants to go into that darkness and he wants to make it light. So the other thing that I also want to point out is that God is, uh, Jonah is angry at God and he says what he says and God's response is a simple question. And it's not even the question that I personally would like ask. If I was in the situation interacting with Jonah, this is not the question that I would ask him. If I was in the situation, most likely I would ask him a question of, why did you run away? Why did you go in the opposite direction? Or why are you putting value into something that is not God? These are the questions that I would ask him. Instead, Jonah just asked, or God asks Jonah, do you do well to be angry? That's his response, a question. To me, this shows how gentle and prompting God is. And it's the second interaction 
that I actually feel like this is where God actually starts to dig in and to reveal to something to Jonah that he just did not see before. Because in the last interaction, when after the plant, Jonah again says, you know, I'm, I'm so mad about this. I'm mad enough to die. And again, God asks him, do you do well to be angry? And then he explains. I'm going to go back to that verse because I think it's actually really, really cool. We're going back to it again. So he says, do you well to be angry for the plant? And then he says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? To me, this is revealing that. And and I think it's interesting because God's referring to the, the people of Nineveh who actually repented. And he's saying that they don't know their right hand from their left. And Jonah doesn't know his right hand from his left. This is a reflection of Jonah in a sense. And then he refers, there's a lot of people down there. Why would I destroy a city when there's so many people who just don't, they're oblivious. They don't know what's going on. They're not, they're just not aware. They don't know what they do. And plus the animals. This to me shows that that God cares about his creation. All right. One last point, and then I can wrap up. Um, So the thing I think is amazing about the way in which God interacts with Jonah is the fact that he's not just telling Jonah stuff and information and knowledge that he needs to know. Because obviously, it's not going to get there in his head because he's oblivious. He doesn't see what God is actually talking about. Instead, God puts Jonah into situations in which he can experience these things. He can experience God's grace. He can experience his mercy and his justice. Because as much as we would like, this isn't an intellectual exercise that we are talking about. I'm not saying, guys, just go out and be firm in your identity. Just tell yourself that you're a child of God. That's not going to work. You can tell yourself that all you want, and it's not, it's not going to make a difference. This is an experience. It's experiential. We have to experience this relationship with God firsthand for ourselves. And I feel like oftentimes what we do is just like we use phones and other things to numb, we also like to put other things in front of us and God. We will put up a pastor. We'll be like, well, I get fed from this pastor or a Bible study, or a community group, or fill-in-the-blank program. But the thing is, is that I am no different than any of you guys in this room. The access that I have to the Father is the same access that you guys have. You guys have direct access. You can go to the feet of the Father and, and, and pray and live in relationship with Him. You don't need a program. You don't need a church. You don't need a community group. A church community group and all of these programs, what they are are their outputs of your relationship with the Father. You participate in these things because of the relationship that you have with him, not to maintain the relationship that you have with him. And so that is why I love communion. And this is the time where I can be like, hey, guys. Because God in his genius understands 
that this isn't purely an intellectual experience, that we need to actually do something, experience something. And so he's given us something experiential for us to respond to today and every week. Communion is our response to the what that is happening in our lives, the way in which God is at work. Every week we have crackers that represent his body that was broken. And we have grape juice that represents his blood that was spilled on our behalf. The communion table represents the reason why we can be so confident in our identity. And so when you guys come up here, I'm going to ask you guys to come from the sides and then go down the center. When you come up to partake in communion, realize this. Participating in communion is not your way of saying that you agree with everything I said. You're not saying, I'm in line with what you said and I agree wholeheartedly. Participating in communion is your way of saying that I'm aligning with Jesus Christ. It is an experience, it's something that you can experience. You feel the cracker in your mouth, the wetness of the grape juice. It's something your body experiences, and it makes you human to have these feelings, these tastes, these smells, these sensations. So with that, I will say, I will pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for all that you are, and I thank you that you loved us first and sent your son so that we can live in relationship with you, Father. And so I ask that as everyone comes up and partakes in communion, that you just remind them that, you are, that they are a child of God, they are they're sons and daughters of the King, and that this act is a representation of your mercy, your grace, and your steadfast love. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.